0: Thank you, Danny. Well, I'm sure you're all guessed where we're headed this morning. If you have your Bibles. Turn to Zechariah chapter six, <laughs> Proverbs chapter thirty. Just see if you're awake. Now, last week, uh, remember when we started chapter thirty? We got into the beginning where it says the words of Agar. <laughs> And last week we continued with his words. And, uh, you know, you should be able by now, just in the last couple of weeks, to see how this whole chapter will be closely tied together and how uh, it all flows through a common teaching or thought that he's trying to get across in this great chapter. And last week we saw Agar, he asked for just two things before he died. And I think they're probably uh, two of the greatest things that uh, are certainly the most important things that a man or a woman could ever ask for from God. And yet, you know, I thought about this all week, you know, in, most of God's people today will, they'll be born, they will live their lives, they'll raise a family, uh, they'll get old and they'll die without ever coming close to uh, getting these two things in their life. And it's a real tragedy today, and how simple it is. You know, the book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man, and the wise man is someone who finds these things and then, obviously, through it gets understanding. And his two requests, you know, really set up a good study for us. And, you know, and if we take it to heart and apply it, it'll help us to get to where, you know, uh, God wants us to be. And, really, the bottom line for you and me, with God, is simply the word understanding. You know, God wants us to understand Him, why He does what He does, who He is, uh, His why He has a relationship, or even wants a relationship with us. And all that is found in that one key word, understanding. And you remember the first thing that He wants is the truth of God. And, you know, He, he says, I want Vanity and lies remove far from me. Here's a guy who has seen all of the things that the world has to offer. He's been told all of the lies that people and, you know, society and everything uh, that goes on uh, gives to us. And he's come to the conclusion now that he wants all that removed from him. And all he wants is the truth of God. You know, if every child of God would just follow that pursuit, And you would want more than anything else in your life the truth of God. You know, it would change every aspect of our lives. You know, one time, back in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, I think it's down around verse 36 or 38 someplace, Jesus went before Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate was the head guy over Jerusalem. He's a Roman. The Romans had taken Jerusalem captivity of Jerusalem they they made it one of their roman providences they've captured them they're under subjection to them uh they're under their domination and pilate was the guy who was at the top of the food chain so to speak and right before jesus was crucified pilate wanted to find out who this jesus was i'm sure he'd heard many things about him and you know and you know uh, but now he wants a first hand understanding so He brings him in, and he starts to question him who he is. And Jesus makes one of the greatest statements to him. He doesn't give him a lot of answers. And, you know, that's another thing. you ought got to notice in the Bible sometimes who Jesus refuses to speak to. Uh, It'll give you great insight onto some things. And he, he says to Pilate one thing in verse 37. He says, Every one of the truth heareth my words. And Pilate's answer is one of the classic answers of of, of not only in the Bible, but in history and life itself. He looks back and he says, what's truth? And when I read that years ago, I thought to myself, you know what? He's the head of the political system that is over Jerusalem at that point in time. He's the highest man uh, in the chain uh, of the Roman Empire. He's been sent there to dictate Roman policy and to enforce it, and here's a guy who sits at the top of everything, running everything, and yet he has no clue what truth is, and I thought to myself, if that isn't the political system that we're all victims of, if that isn't the religious system that we're all victims of, I remember one time years ago, we, uh, I would send discipleship teams out, and some of you were part of those teams back in the day. And uh, we would send them to churches, and we would teach them how to disciple people. And we we went down to Springfield to uh, uh, the the big church down there that was connected with the High Street Baptist, that was connected with Baptist Bible College back in the day, still is. And we were we were laying it out to them. And one of my guys was talking about, and the past they would give it to the pastors first. And one of the guys was talking about how that one of the things that we will do with discipleship is to establish people into the truth, one of the goals. And a pastor in that church looked at him and he says, what's truth? And I thought to myself, that's exactly where not only the political world is, the unsaved world, but that's where Christianity is today. Not only did the leaders of the day politically not know what truth is, but the scribes and the Pharisees didn't know it either. And I want to tell you something else, not only does Washington, D.C. and the rest of the leadership around this country not know what truth is, but most of the leaders in Christianity do not either. And it's an incredible thing. And without a doubt, these two questions will be the most important thing a man could ask from God. And yet, you know, it's, it's that system that I told you about that it's, a, it's just broken down. And the second thing that he asks for is he wants a balance in that truth. And in verse 9, he gives us two extremes there. We didn't really get into this last week, but I knew we were coming this way. Uh, he gives two extremes of being out of balance. Once he says, there's a guy who says, I'm fool. I have everything I want. And he denies God. And then he says, who is the Lord? And boy, that is so true of people who get so full of the world and have everything that they want. They come to the place that they forget not only everything that God did for them, but they forget the God who gave it to them. Then the other extreme was, I'm poor and I, I have to steal. And uh, when I do that, I take the name of the Lord in vain because that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou not shall not steal. And it shows now that, <clears throat> that he wants to be in the middle He doesn't want everything that the world has to offer or he can have because he knows it will pull him away from God. And he doesn't want to be (coughs) busted and broke down poor because he knows that that will lead down (coughs) another road. He wants to be in the middle. And that is so true of what God does. The common man who he gives a common Bible will produce common sense. And boy, was that ever missing today. And then I gave you uh, 10 or 15 of key balances in the Bible. And I tried to show you uh, how that, the importance of balance in everything in our lives. And when we get out of balance, this is where the problem comes in. I would say if a guy or a gal really is saved and has the Lord in their life, when they get out of fellowship or they head down a wrong road, and, and we all do from time to time, some on just greater degrees than others, but I'm going to tell you the number one issue that causes that is getting out of balance. God is a perfect balance. He's, a, he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Within those three titles, you have the complete balance of God. When God created everything in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was a perfect balance, absolutely perfect. Perfect weather perfect everything and then when man in genesis chapter 3 threw the world into sin he not only just threw it into sin he threw the world out of balance now everything is out of balance now we have they'll have to have the four seasons i'm not talking about the musical group i'm talking about around us we got to have spring summer uh, you know fall and winter we have to have a cycle now where well, we didn't have that back in genesis it was before the fall it was perfect weather all the time no hurricanes, no floods, no natural disasters, no no thunderstorms. It was perfect. It was an absolute perfect environment. Today, you can have a cat or you can have a dog. Back then, you could have had a pet lion. You could have had a pet tiger. You could have had a pet rhinoceros, if that's what you wanted. I guess, a, you know, the, the, the animals were, were tame because everything was a perfect balance. But man will always upset the balance. And in your life and my life, when he gave us the Bible, when he gave us the Bible, he says, you want a balance in the Bible? Okay, it's doctrinally, historically, and inspirationally. That's the balance. And in your life and my life, for the Christian life, the balance is absolutely imperative. And now, the Bible calls it moderation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, uh, or excuse me, in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Let all men see your moderation. Moderation is balance. Then 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says that in that balance, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. You can do whatever you want to do, but you have to stay within balance that you're not brought under the power of any, he says. And if if I can help you this morning... Uh, better b- melt this down, cook this down to, to uh, you know, uh, I didn't mean to say cook. That sounds like meth. Uh, you know, Bring this down to a thing where you can actually smoke it if you want to get that far. The Christian balance is just five things. Think of, think of the guy out there in the carnival who juggles five balls and keeps them going all the time, and he just keeps it going. And then he gets real creative, and he, he's really good now. And then he, then he closes his eyes and does it. And then he goes up from his leg and he does Now that's good balance. Every Christian has to be a balance. And I saw a guy one time, I don't know how, he had sticks up with plates on it and he kept the plates spinning. And he would just keep them going and they would spin perfect balance. That's what the Christian life is in five areas. Five fundamental areas of balance in your life and my life. You know what the first one is? Balance with the Bible. You've got to be balanced in the Bible. The second one is ministry. You've got to be balanced in the ministry. The third one is your marriage. You've got to be balanced in your marriage. The fourth one is your family. You've got to be balanced with your kids. And, of course, the fifth one is your job. You've got to be balanced in, in the thing that you do. Now, every one of those is an individual balance. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Every one of those in an individual balance, when you put them in your own life, when you get a balance in your life, you know, and the next thing you got to do, you got to balance the balance. And it's a thing where you, these things always have to be kept in perspective. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that is, is so key when you, when you get into your own Christian life. You have to have these things, you know, moving in the right direction and keep the balance in them. And, uh, you know, a balance obviously will be the most important aspect of our relationship with God and the Word of God. And at the same time, when we start to get out of balance on one of these things, it will always affect the rest. You can't get out of balance with the Bible and still have an effective ministry. You can't get out of balance with the Bible and ministry, which is your relationship with God, and have a good balance in your family or your job, or your marriage, or whatever. When you get one of them out, it always affects the rest of them. And, uh, you know, out of balance, and maybe, you know, you have to get a little year's experience of seeing it, but out of balance is so easy to see in a person's life. I mean, it is just obvious. You know, years ago, I learned a lot of lessons in life about life in the hard way. My mom, my dad died when I was 21, and uh, my mom remarried after that, and I was pretty much on my own, which was fine. But I didn't, I didn't, my mom had done everything, you know, as moms always do, and so I'm pretty much uh, opening up a new frontier here uh, about things. Uh, I had never had to wash my own clothes before. Uh, I, you know, I had never, uh, dealt with a stopped-up sewer, which we had problems all the time. And uh, it was a thing where it, it was a new experience for me. I remember I paid $30, which was a lot of money back in the, that day. This would have been back in you know, the early, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, I, I spent $30 one time to because uh, I went down to wash the clothes, and I put the clothes in it, put the soap in it, uh, and uh, push the buttons and it, nothing would happen. So I called the washer repair guy and he came out and I'm standing down there and he says, well, he says, everything looks okay. He says, um, you got your clothes in it. He says, yeah, you got the soap in it and then he closed the lid and pushed the button and it started right off. I paid $30 to find out you got to close the lid on your washing machine before you can wash the clothes. I've had to learn a lot of things the hard way. I was famous for locking my key, you know. And sometimes we don't like—none of us like to be rebuked. None of us like to be told we're stupid, but you know we are stupid sometimes. You do know that. And sometimes somebody telling us we're stupid, even though we don't like it, really helps us out. One time I locked my keys in my car, in my car. and uh, you know, hey, so uh, you you know you what you do? You call the guy that comes out, and, and in ten seconds, he's open, pops my, put that thing down there, and pops it right back up, and. 30 dollars. I mean, that's immoral. I'm just telling it right now. So, so, you know, two weeks later, I did the exact same thing. I could kick myself. And I called the guy, and he came back out, and he did the same thing. And this time, it was only thirty dollars. And I asked him. I said, I, "I'm glad, but I said last time it was thirty-five. This time it was thirty. I'm just wondering." You know, and he says, "Oh, he's choking now." He says, "Oh, we give we give a bonus for being stupid." <laughs> well, I didn't need to hear that. <laughs> you know, you wonder what's wrong with me? It's things like that that warped me and made me the way I am today. And I remember the first time I uh, washed clothes. You know, I mean, uh and, and got it going. Uh, I didn't I didn't know anything about, you know, balancing out a washing machine. So I put you know, I didn't know anything about you know, keeping the blacks and whites separate when you wash them. <laughs> the world was segregated even back then. I mean, what can I tell you? So I'm loading up. The, I thought, hey, you know what? Here, this is the man's way of thinking. You got a washing machine. You would think that when you have a lot of clothes, the more clothes you could get in, the cleaner they would get it and the more if you could get done. Yeah, that's the way a guy thinks. And, you know, that's why women... Never, in most cases, and step to rare cases, will allow the husband to change diapers because he sees the diapers on the box that it's for 15 to 20 pounds. He thinks that's how much it holds. <laughs> so I, I put the clothes in there, put the soap in, closed the lid, learned that lesson. And I haven't locked the keys in my car since that time, okay? So. Push the button, and I go upstairs, and I'm thinking to myself, "Well, that was pretty easy." And all of a sudden, I hear this: Room, "Boom, boom, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 boom." And I'm thinking, "What is that?" So obviously, I think somebody's broken into the downstairs. So I grab my trusty 45 ACP and sneaking down the steps like that. And I looked over, and the washing machine is spewing stuff out the lid, and it's actually, honestly, it's going. Boom, boom. It's, and it just sounded like it was doing a rumble. You know, boom, 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 boom. You know, and it's just going crazy down there. And I'm, I'm thinking, what is going on? I, now, the washing machine is out. I called my mom, and she says, well, how many clothes did you put in it? And I said, well, I filled it up to the top. <laughs> she says, you can't do that. She says, stop it, take some of the clothes out, and, and just don't put as much. And it was fine. But I've thought about that, and years later, when you're dealing with people and Christians, I watch, watch a lot of God's people do the rumba because you're out of balance. And when you're out of balance, it shows, man, where everybody else is standing there saying, how great that you're, boom, 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 that you're doing your own version of the worldly rumba because you're out of balance, and balance will get us every time. And, you know, it's a thing where it's, it's getting a child of God out of balance in the Bible, the ministry, the marriage, the family, or the job will produce the problems that we have. And I'm telling you, the hardest thing you're ever going to have to do as a Christian is get that balance. And then the second hardest thing is, is when you get that balance, you have to balance that balance. So... That's what we talked about last week, and you're going to see how this all connects together. Now today, you know, this section will be about uh, verse 10 through verse 14, and we will get a lot of information uh, out of these verses, so uh, we we want to get right to it here, and let me me read it. It says, "'Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and thou be found guilty.'" There, verse 11, there is a generation that curses their father and doth not bless their mother. Verse 12, here we come again. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Verse 13, there is a generation. Oh, how lofty are their eyes. Their eyelids are lifted up. Verse 14, there is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Dell, would you stand up back there? Or if you don't have to stand up, if you don't want to, but just ask God. You've got a great booming voice. Just add God's blessing on the service this morning. Amen. All right, now let's look at verse 10. We're going to take these one at a time. It says, Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee and thou be found guilty. Now, first off, let's look at the practical application here so we can see it. Uh, This is a man uh, obviously trying to gain favor with a, uh, and it may be another slave or it may be another. Whatever, But he's trying to gave, gain favor with the master by ratting on uh, somebody and trying to tell the master this guy did something wrong and thinking that the master will reward him or uh, he'll get on the inside with him because he's tattletaling, so to speak, on the, uh, the servant that's not doing what's right. Now, the comparative passage on this will be over in... Uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 21 of the book of Proverbs, so you want to probably put those two together. But you saw a picture of this in in, in form back in 2 Samuel, chapter 1. When Absalom had been killed, David is grieving over Absalom, or excuse me, Saul, uh, grieving over it, and then uh, an Amalekite guy comes in and tells David that he's dead and I killed him, thinking that he's going to get some kind of favor with David. And of course, uh, David uh, asks him, going back to the Bible, as David always did, uh, you felt okay with stretching out your hand against the Lord's anointed?" And he killed the guy. It didn't work for him. And that's really the basis of the verse here. Obviously, this guy is lying about the servant or... uh, he would not be found guilty in, uh, in his accusation and it wasn't true. So that's the inspirational thing. We can all relate to that. Now, let's get to the meat of it, the doctrinal thing here. There's something else here, and I want you to be able to get this down. Now, doctrinally, the accuser here within the book of Proverbs and how we're coming through and what we know it to be will be the devil who, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, is called the accuser of the brethren. And the picture here will be found in two places in your Bible, Job chapter 1, uh, and then uh, starting in verse 6, and then again in Job chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, Job chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there was none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, that feareth God, and escheweth evil. Escheweth is an old English word it means abstains from it, or hates it, or doesn't get involved in it. Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge about him, about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Hast thou blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land? Put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, uh, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon him uh, put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, in the first place here, we see where the devil is accusing Job uh, before God. And God brought his name up and said, I'll consider, you've been down there walking around checking things out. Have you considered my servant Job? And the devil says, yeah, he ain't much. And then he goes to work on discrediting and accusing Job uh, before God. Now, God gives, says, okay, you can take all that he had, but you can't touch him, and off he goes. Now, he comes back again in chapter 2. That didn't work. And here's, just read chapter 2 now, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth. Now, you want to watch that phrase to and fro. That's always a phrase that Most of the time, I'm not going to say every time, but most of the time is going to be connected in some way, shape, or form with the devil. So you just want to remember that, one of those key things. From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there was none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But pour forth thine hand now, and touch the bone of his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot until his crown. Now we know what happens to the rest of this place here. Job goes through seven days of terrible anguish, Before God uh, relieved. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see here. Now, we know from our past studies that Job and the book of Job is a type of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. We know that. Uh, We've been through it many, many times, and I won't belabor the point, but there's always new people hanging out, so I'll just kind of give you a, a brief thing. Job, the name Job means one persecuted. Uh, Job is in the land of Uz. That's exactly where the Jew is going to be during the tribulation period. Job is on the ground seven days being persecuted by the uh, devil himself, where the tribulation, the nation of Israel goes through it for seven years, being persecuted by the devil. Job loses all that he has. So does the nation of Israel. There's a resurrection at the end of the book, which matches in chapter 42, verse 13, which is the type of the resurrection at the end of the tribulation period. Job gets back double at the end of the book everything that he has. And the Bible says in Isaiah 61-7, and again in Deuteronomy 21-17, that Israel at the end gets back double everything that she had lost. And of course, the 42 chapters in the book of Job matching up to the 42 months into the great tribulation period. And here you find, uh, you know, uh, in the Bible, two great chapters on the devil. In the New Testament, it'll be Revelation chapter 12 and uh, 13. And in the Old Testament, it'll be Job chapter 40 and chapter 41. And the two are connected together. Now, the thing that I want you to see here, a couple of things, is, um, you know, we all, and I get it. I understand. We all think that there's times when the devil's out to get us. And obviously, conceptually, the devil is out to get us. But I don't want you to to get confused here. Do you think that the uh, devil gets up in the morning and has you in mind that he's going to destroy you? Uh, He doesn't have to do that way because he knows that he just needs to sprinkle some things on your cupcakes and you'll destroy yourself. He doesn't really have to send somebody down, him come down himself. This is a great misconception today. From the book of Job and other places, Revelation 12 and 13, it's very clear that the devil's main attack and main concern will be against the nation of Israel, typified by Job. When you get over to James chapter Five, which is another a great book written to the nation of Israel, uh you know James one one to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, you'll find that in that great passage of chapter five uh down through there, I think it's in verse eleven that he actually uses Job as a reference to the Jew in the tribulation by saying that you need to have the patience of job, and it's all tribulation. so the first thing I want you to know and understand is you don't i mean I'm not saying that you, you you just need to know that the devil is not, when somebody says, well, the devil, you know, really is after me. That's a conceptual thing. Obviously, he has unclean spirits that, that uh, will do his work, but the devil himself... The Bible says that uh, he, he, he likes the uppermost seats of the synagogue. If somebody wanted to really pinpoint where the devil was moving back and forth, and notice he's coming back and forth in the earth, that's another thing you want to see, walking up and down in it. If you wanted to pinpoint him today, I would suggest that you uh, look over there in the, uh, in, in the European side of things, somewhere around maybe Rome, and how it's connected with everything throughout the world. Uh, that's where I would look, and specifically against the nation of Israel. And uh, it's a thing where that's the first thing I want you to understand. And then, as I said, I want you to know that Satan travels back and forth from the earth up before the throne of God. But what I want you to know is he's not accusing you and me up there. That would never—he would never do that because he knows the Bible better than we do, and he knows that would be a wasted time. He can get away with-, with Israel, but he couldn't get away with you and me. You know why? Because the moment the devil stands up, remember now Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. The moment that the devil goes up to the throne and he says, hey, I want to talk to you about Bob Alexander and I want to tell you what a rotten scoundrel he is. You know he did this, 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 and this. And before he even got the first three words out of his mouth, Jesus Christ would stand up and say, Father, he's in me and I'm in him and it's all covered by the blood. He got saved at this particular point and God would say, case dismissed, get out of here. See, that's the difference. Israel wasn't in Christ. They're not covered by the blood. And it's a thing where those are little things you need to understand. And then I want you to see this. If the devil would attack you and me, and we do it by our own flesh, and I'm not saying that the forces of evil uh, don't uh, give us problems and tempt us and all those things, but, but uh, I want you to see that when the devil does attack, in this case Israel, what he attacks, and he'll always do this, He'll attack before God the motive by which what we do. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the judgment seat of Christ, the number one thing that we're going to have to give an account for, is why we did what we did. The motive behind it. And, uh, you know, and as I showed you many times, you know, Revelation chapter 12 and 13 uh, is in great detail how that the devil hates the nation of Israel. And the reason for his hatred to such an incredible degree is because that at one time in Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, the devil had everything. He was Lucifer then, and he had control over everything. He was the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. He was over everything that God did. When he lost that, then God takes all of that and gives it to the nation of Israel. Uh, We know that from Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, that Before Genesis 1-2, anyhow, someplace in there, that there was an Eden, a garden of God, and the devil obviously had his throne there, and he ran it all from there. And when he lost that, then God gives that land grant to Abraham and going to the Jew. And the nation of Israel in time is going to get everything that the devil once had but lost, and he wants it back. And so that's the attack. That's why he hates them. And it is clearly laid out for you in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. And so the Bible calls him in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, the accuser of our brethren. And the brethren will be the nation of Israel, typified, as I said, by Job. Now, let me read that, verse, uh, uh, Revelation 12, 9. Uh, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and the angels and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, "Now is salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ." Now, if you don't have that marked in your Bible, that His Christ, you need to mark that because it'll show you. And there's a couple other places too. It'll show you that there's two Christs. The devil's a Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. And you have another place that's called, he's called the Lord's Christ, Jesus is. Here it's called his Christ, God's Christ. And then when the devil shows up, he's called the what? Christ, To Christ. You've got to make sure you're following, you know, which one you're following. And then he says, uh, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And of course, the accusation there, as I said, is typified by the book of Job, and it's the devil going uh, after the nation of Israel, accusing them. Now, look at verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. We're not going to teach 14 today because that goes along with what I want to say next week. But we are going to look at 11, 12, and 13. And... Here's what you got now, and this is where it gets good. And it's only going to get gooder as we go on. Now he talks about a generation. And we need to identify that generation today, which we will. And then he gives us four things about that generation that we need to see. And when we look at those four things, we'll get to three of them today. When we look at these four things, then we're going to tie them in to why Christianity and the world that we live in is in the sorry, sad state that it is. Oh, it's, it's a real key, a real eye-opener, if you would. Now, let's, let's lay this out for you. Now, doctrinally here, all this will be about God and the nation of Israel and God restoring them. We are living in the day today where we are right on the verge of one of the greatest events in the history of the world, and that will be the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know what you know about newspapers or newspapers, (laughs) publicers, and they may have changed us by now, I don't know, but back in the day... In the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s, and the 70s, and maybe even today, they had different type for front page news. And the bigger the type, the bigger the story, obviously. Now, do you know the biggest type that they would use in a newspaper, front page headline news? Do you know what they called that headline type? It was called, yes, second coming type. It was what they was going to use if the Lord come back and they got the print about it. And that's kind of an amazing thing. It shows you that back then, I don't care what the world was like, they still had a fundamental understanding of the Bible and God and knew that there was God was coming. It's incredible. And, uh, you know, the restoration of the nation of Israel is something that is the greatest event that we're we get to see, because what happened was is that um, that is what ushers in everything that God's doing, and you know people look at the five o'clock news and the Middle East and what's going on with Russia and all this stuff and the and the Muslims and the Jews and everything that's happening over there, and it's a very complicated, a very hard sometimes to figure out (coughs) what in the world is going on. And yet it's really not if you just stay simplistic with the Bible. What you're seeing, not only around the world with the United Nations all standing against Israel, with every country on this planet standing against Israel except America and England, what you're seeing (coughs) is... The, all the preparation for God restoring the nation of Israel and bringing about the events of the second coming of Christ. Now, <clears throat> this generation. Matthew chapter twenty-four, and in Bible Institute, uh, not this last week—it was People Ministry—but the week before, in Bible Institute, uh, we were going through dispensations, and we went through uh, the beginning. We went through the tribulation period. And I showed them that Matthew chapter 24, in fact, we laid the whole chapter out in incredible detail. Matthew chapter 24 is the greatest chapter in the Bible defining the tribulation period. And it's a chapter that's built around two questions that the the apostles come and ask the Lord. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, 2, 3, they're, they're in the Mount of Olives. And by the way, that's exactly where the Lord comes back at the second coming. And they ask him two questions. Fundamentally, they say, What is going to be the sign of thy coming? And where will when the end of the world come? Now, those are the two questions that they ask. What I showed the people in Bible Institute, because they're there to learn the Bible, is I showed you how that the rest of that chapter, and I split it up for them, shows you exactly how he answers each question. And it all comes down to the sign of His coming and the end of the world. And He tells us in Matthew chapter 20 verse 32 after He goes through all the things that are going to happen to the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, after all those things takes place, He says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 32 that the key that you want to look for is the budding of the fig tree. And without getting into a long dissertation on that, the budding of the fig tree, Israel will be the fig tree. And the budding of the fig tree will be that the day, that the time and the year that Israel becomes a nation again because she's a barren fig tree. And in 2432, it says that she puts forth her first leaves. And that will be in history for us. That'll be, that'll be in, in May of 1948. May the 15th of 1948, when the nation of Israel, something happened. That, that, that is one of the most unknown time in history for anybody who's looking at history. And yet it is the time where everything in the world changed. And nobody saw it. Because that was the beginning of the end. It was the beginning of everything moving toward the second coming of Christ. That, for almost four, 3,000 years, Israel had been without a homeland, no nation, wandering this world, and yet over and over and over and over again, through the prophets in the Old Testament, God told us that He was going to regather Israel and bring them back, the greatest way to lay that out in the systematic would be Ezekiel chapter 35, 36 up to chapter 40. It shows you chapter by chapter how those things work out. And so what happens is, is in 1948, Israel becomes a nation. And he says, and here's your generation, he says, that generation, 1948, will not pass before all these things come the past that he's been talking about, and there are things in the tribulation period. So what he's basically saying, and this is the generation that we're going to look at, we're going to see four things about it that will show you exactly what I'm telling you is true. You're going to see now these four four concepts about this generation starts with the budding of the fig tree, and from this point on, he's saying, whoever is born in 1948, That generation from 1948, when the last person that is born in that year will die, that brings an end to that generation. The generation of World War I vets has has ceased to exist. You know why? Five or six years ago, the last World War I vet died. I remember back in the 60s when the last Civil War guy died, believe it or not. And it's a thing where it's, it's, it's the generation will end. Now, here's your problem, and, you know, it's not a problem, but you don't know for sure what a generation is because there's four or five or six of them in the Bible, and there may be even one that we never found. Forty years is the generation. Forty-two years is the generation. Seventy years is the generation. hundred years is the generation. Thirty-three years is the generation. And 120 years is the generation. And there may be one out there that we never found. So we don't know the time, but what we do know is this. That generation in 1948 will not come to an end before the Lord comes back and everything is going to take place. Now, now I don't really know what you know about the Bible. I really don't care. I don't care what you believe today, what church you're part of, what religion you're part of. I'm just telling you this. You better understand that when he said, when you see the budding of the fig tree, you know it's even at the door. So you better find out wherever your religious ticket is around your neck, you better make sure that your soul is covered by the blood of Christ because he's coming. And uh, it's, it's just that simple. Most people don't care, believe what the Bible says. There's a little song came out, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. It went like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. You know, real cute little thing. You know what the truth of the matter is? God said it. That settles it. He doesn't care. whether you believe it or not? It's settled. He's coming back. And you can pretend he's not, and you can pretend, oh, you know, I don't believe it. It doesn't matter. He told you that that generation, now let me show you that generation. Boy, if you walk out of here saying, well, I can't buy it. You're crazy, man. You're nuts. You're nuts. Now, This generation now, we know, runs from 1948 up through the time that we're living in 2020. Yeah, you would think that Christian eyesight would be 2020 when it comes, but it isn't. Up to the rapture of the church, and that ends this generation. Now, within this, we know from our chart over there, the church age that we're living in, the Laodicean church, we know all about that right smack dab in the middle of this thing. A lot of things changed in 1948. I don't have time to get into it today. I would say that it was probably the final transition into the and church age. <laughs> I don't have time to get into this this morning, but you know the, the first UFO show up in the world in 1947 out in Mount Rainier, Washington. Now, there hadn't been a reported case of UFOs of any imaginable thing, uh, Uh, all down through history. Oh, God saw this, saw that, and things happened. But you know what? From 1947 up to the time that we live in now, there have been over 800,000 sightings. You know what took place in 1947 right before they became a nation? Roswell, New Mexico. I'm telling you there's a reason for that. And I don't have time to get into the sons of God this morning and show you all that stuff, but you know what? You should have 2020. You should have understanding and understand these things. And I'll tell you something else. From that point on, Paul, oh, the whole movie industry was was, was just inundated in in with, with science fiction movies about life from outer space. I mean, you had the blame, brain from Planet Eris. You had the thing that ate New York and got a thank you note from President Kennedy. You got, you got you got you got every one of those said that there was life in outer space and got this whole world thinking that there's aliens out there that are some superior intellect that are going to come down and, and, you know, and you know where the Paramount was? The Paramount was, what, 20, 25 years ago with a little movie, E.T. And on the marquee, you know, it's so subtle in this generation. On the marquee, It was the picture of Michelangelo where in the Sistine Chapel, it's got the finger of God touching the fingering of man, Adam. But in the movie, it was the finger of God touching the finger of E.T. And nobody even caught it. I'm telling you, it's one of those things where E.T. came down here and he gets adopted by a family. You know what the wife's name was of the family that adopted him? Yes, it was Mary. You know that E.T. resurrects and comes back to life. E.T. heals. He does all those things. And when he's in the hospital and he's dying, if you look up in the clock, it's that exact same time Christ was dying on the cross. I I don't know what you watch. And this whole world was getting you ready that someday when the man of sin comes down, he's going to come down just like they did in Genesis chapter 6. And I'll tell you what, if God was driving along going to heaven in the second coming of Christ in his Corvette. He Down there in the first, second, and third century, he was in first gear, and he was throwing it wrong. He's got a supercharger on it. And he got out there at about, oh, I don't know, uh, 900, 800. He shifted into second gear. He's moving along now. He's heading for heaven, but he wants to get there. And he's really going at it now. At about 1900, he flipped it into fourth gear, third gear and stepped on the gas. And then in 1948, he flipped on the supercharger, put it down in fifth gear, and stomped on it and is on his way back. It's here. I'll show it to you. What are you looking at me for? Nothing wrong with me. It's wrong with you. I'm fine. I'm okay. Ooh, that hurt. I'm going to show you this generation. This will be the answer to so many questions. And along with all this material, you want understanding this generation. There's two more places we've got to kind of give you here. One of them is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and the other one is Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Now, here will help you. Matthew chapter 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, what was going on in Noah's time is going to be right before the Lord comes back. Hello, sons of God. And in Luke chapter 17 verse 28, as it was in the days of Lot, so be the coming in the Son of Man. Hello, Bruce Jenner Bruceine. This is why. The, this is the why. The, this is hey. This will answer why we're faced with the things that we're faced. In 1947, eight if 47. If you were gay, you were in the closet. From that point, when it all started to move, hello. My name is Alan Degenerate. Then off you go. In the world and in Christianity. Now, we're going to talk about three aspects of the four of this generation. Each one will show you right where we are at today in respect to the two questions that they ask him on the Mount of Olives. Sign of our coming, the end of the world. Look at verse 11. Let's get into this here. There is a generation that curses the Father, and doth not bless the mother. Now, who couldn't see that today in the world and in Christianity, in our generations? Children defying their parents. Children disrespecting their parents. Not just the world, God's people. I mean, half my life is dealing with kids who, who, who totally disregard their parents and disrespect them give them all kinds of problems, and it's a, it's a thing that it's unbelievable. There are more killings and murderers today and shootings. I think Joe Christensen was telling me the other night, Thursday night Bible study, that just this last week in Independence, they had 13 shootings. Like you go down. You go down. The guy in Raytown it was just the older guy. A couple years ago, was just walking, running, jogging in the morning, and somebody came by and shot him. There is absolutely in the youth today no quality of life. They've been playing video games that mom and dad let them. Let them killing everything and everybody, and pretty soon it isn't enough. And they get in with the wrong crowd, and the wrong crowd says, you know what, you want to be part of this gang, you got to snuff somebody, you got to kill them. And there's a, there, the, the, the quality of life is so low with our kids today because they've been exposed to everything. And it's an absolute disaster. Children defying their parents, disrespecting their parents, cursing their parents and being totally rebellious within the family. And I'm telling you right now, this is, it all goes back to the fact that we have lost in this country any moral fiber that holds the quality of life in any way situation back to the Bible. We are living in the most jungle, barbaric times in the history of the world where an educated, sophisticated society produces children that think so little of human life and disregard any authority. That's this generation. Now let me just say this because there are a lot of young families here and, you know, I I need to tell you this. Most of you already know this. For a child, his first line of defense against this generation will be his parents. And the parents will build and instill into that child the importance of obeying and respect for authority. Never allowing the seeds of rebellion to get into that child's head. If it does, you remove it through the seat of his pants. A parent will build respect and obedience in the child in three fundamental basic areas. Now, if you're here this morning and you say, well, I didn't have that when I was growing up, and my kid's this or my kid's that, oh, have I got a plan for you. I'll help you. But I'm talking about you young people in here who now are having families and are raising, you're having kids and raising a family, And, uh, you know, it's a thing where you as a parent need to build respect and obedience in the child in three fundamental areas. One, the family structure with mom and dad. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 3. It talks about obeying your parents. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. You have to begin there. The second one will be God and the ultimate authority, the structure of the New Testament church. You have to use those two together. You have to build it on your own, but you need the reinforcement of God's structure. And while you're building the fundamental respect for authority in the family, you're building it toward a relationship with God. And then, of course, the third thing will be the Uh, Authority figures, Romans chapter 13, them that have rule over you. Respect our police. Respect the people who are over you. They're not always right. And sometimes they're dead wrong. But you're not always right. And sometimes we're dead wrong. But you have to understand that that's the structure that God gave us and when it isn't right or it's some injustice that God will straighten it out at some point. It's just that simple. When you don't have these three things, you have what we have in America, anarchy. And kids will disrespect mom and dad. They'll curse them out. They'll do what they want to do. They'll fight you at every turn. Because when that breaks down, you'll have at some point a state of rebellion on your hands. And 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says that rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. And I'm telling you, now, I'm going to give you a little secret here. You better get this. Now, we all know that Israel got into a mess back there with the, all the other gods and everything, and you can trace it through 1 Chronicles. I mean, it's, it's a mess. I get it. But I want to tell you something. And if you quicker you see this, the better off you're going to be. In the Old Testament, you know when Israel completely went to pieces? When well, they hit the point of no return? It was a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4, and Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 16. You know what it was? It's when the children began to reign on the throne of Israel. And the men no longer reigned. You know when you know your family's headed for trouble? When your kids run your family instead of you running it. When you, they tell you instead of you telling them when they get so much power in their world, because you gave it to them, that now they can hold your grandkids from you, they can hold their, you can hold everything from you if you don't give them what they want. And I'm telling you, Israel went to pieces when the children began to reign over the kingdom that God gave it to the kings of Israel like David and Solomon. And you're getting to see it when they start raining, when they're eight years old, they're 13 years old, they're 15 years old. And I've seen many a family where mom and dad stood on the wayside, had no control over their kids, and the kids ran everything. And mom and dad's idea of fixing it was just give them more stuff, appease it. Now, the answer is a ball bat. And I'm telling you, you have to begin. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the judgment begins at the house of God. You have to use the structure. I'm telling you something. If little kids have no respect for the family and the church, God's house, when they're 6, 7, and 8, And they could run through the church like it's a circus. When they get 18, 19, and 20, they'll run through the world the same way. There has to be some kind of teaching tool. They have to realize that that there are certain things that you don't just treat like you do at home. You have to use every avenue to teach them respect and responsibility for what God has given them in life by what God has given us here or in any church and if you allow them to disrespect God's house here later on in life they'll disrespect their own temple the body of Christ here and it's just that simple i mean you got to look for every opportunity <coughs> we you know we went and spent all this money and doing and I'm not complaining everybody's doing really good <coughs> But we had all this money fixing up, doing, cleaning everything, getting it all ready up. Everybody helped, got the carpet done. And we simply said, you know what? You know, we don't bring any drinks into this anymore unless you have a, a, you know, an ironclad 55-gallon drum with a sucker through it that you can get your coffee out. We really nailed it down. Now, I'm not, everybody's great, and I'm not fighting it at all. But you know what a parent should have done? I don't, maybe you did. Praise the Lord if you did. I know there were some people didn't like it. I didn't like it. But you like it less when I watch you down there and you kick your coffee over and it leaves a stain on the floor. And you know what? We paid, what, three or $4,000? You just get to say, oops. See? And instead of just grumbling about it, what should have happened is sat down with your kids and saying, you know what? This is God's house. This is where God, we meet Now, I know that real house and a church, I get it. This building is just a building. I get that. But it's fundamentally a place where God's people meet and God gave it to us, God provided it for us, and we have an obligation to take care. Hey, you let, uh, when you, uh, there's a family on the back street of my house, they don't have anymore, got killed. They had a pet pig. It's a big sucker. Big black pig. I mean, it was, a, it was wide and long, and it was the cutest thing you ever saw in your life. But they had it as a pet in the house. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be laying out in the yard. I'd just drive by to see it, you know. And uh, I, I didn't see it for a while, and I, I actually got curious, and I, one of the kids was out getting the mailbox, and I stopped, and I said, hey, what happened to the pig? Well, about that time... The mama came out. She was quite the pig herself, i this telegram. telling her. <laughs> She's standing there like this, watching me talk to this kid. And I, and I knew I was kind of in trouble, so I just thought I'd break the ice and say, "Oi, <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. I said, hey, I said, I, I just drive right by here, I loved your pig. That sounds so stupid. I got in the car and I said, I am the dumbest person on the planet. I got out said to this lady on the porch with her arms crossed looking at me, I love your pig. Anyway, I said, oh, just give me a minute here. Sometimes I just crack myself up. I said, what happened to the pig? She says, it got run over by a car. <laughs> You're kidding me? That must have totaled that car. <laughs> I didn't say that, but it was, a, it was a big pig. Anyway, could you, would you, I mean, I mean, I already heard the groans. How many moms right here would welcome a pig into your house? Nobody. And this is the case, you can raise your hand. Because I'll take you down and introduce you to the lady on the front porch. <laughs> I mean, you know how dirty pigs are. I mean, pigs are the dirtiest thing. You know, they eat garbage, they roll in mud, and pig droppings are just not something that you want all through your house. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't never seen a pig litter box. If it had one for this one, it was the size of a sandbox. But you, you, you're, you would never do that. But when it comes to the house of God, hey, we're okay with whatever happens. And you, there has to be every avenue that you teach, and you need to tell your kids, you know what? This is God's house. We, we, we don't do that here. And and I'm, I'm not fighting anything. I mean, you're doing great. But I'm just using that as an illustration. If they don't respect here. And you would not tolerate it in your home? Come on. Now, this generation, I'm going to show it to you. It's found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where the Bible says that God saw the wickedness man was great on the earth, and everything that he did, his thoughts were evil against God. And when you you, you will find that Job writes around this time period and look at the kids of this generation that is in Noah's time that now we know (coughs) is also our generation as it was in the days of Noah. Job chapter 22, verse 15, nails it for us. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? Have you? You haven't marked in your Bible, do you? Are you learning anything from it, are you? Which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overthrown with a what? A flood, Genesis 6, which said unto God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do for them? There it is. There's there's the generation we're living right now, just like Noah's. People saying to God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do for us? That's where you're at today. Then next chapter back, Job chapter 21, verses uh, verses 7 through 15. Watch it again. They're connected. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, and are mighty in power. You bet they are. Here it comes. Their seed is established in their sight with them. That's their kids. And their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Now, don't, don't get that wrong interpretation of that where it says their house is safe from fear, it's talking about the fear of God. Because it says in the last part of that verse, neither is the rod of God upon them. Let me tell you something. You take the rod of God out of your house and there'll be no fear of God in your house. Their bull genereth and faileth not. I much wish that that, said their pig, but it didn't. I could have used that. Their bull genereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. Ah, here it comes. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. There it is. That's the generation we're in, like to know a generation. Ah, here it comes. They take the timbrel and the harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. Here it comes. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, just like 22. Verse 15 through 17. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Now there it is. There it is. There is the generation that we live in and our kids are in that they want nothing to do with God and it's brought this generation to kids cursing their families, cursing mom and dad, living in a state of rebellion, and we just accept it. Ha, ha, save verse 15 for last. What is the Almighty? They're not even asking who is the Almighty. They've lost every, this, this generation, you have lost every concept of God. God is not a who anymore. He's a what. Here it is. No knowledge of God whatsoever. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto Him? Really? Your kids spend time in the Bible? Your kids see your kids praying? Now, this generation was completely away from every concept of God. What is the Almighty? A complete and total breakdown of who God is in this generation. And this generation is our generation. Notice, over with the flood. 22, 15, 16, and as it was in the days of Noah, Matthew 24, so shall be in the coming and the Son of Man. The parallels are so clear you couldn't miss it unless you had a Ph.D. in Bible or belonged to a watered-down neo-evangelical or Baptist church that rejects truth. Now look at verse twelve. Second thing about this generation. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Now, this will be the reason that I tell you so many times over and over again that I really worry about so many people that, that I don't even know if they've ever truly been saved. And I have people in my own church that I, I'll be honest, I can, I'm concerned about, I worry about. And this is the reason for this. They have fallen victim to the devil's plan to destroy Christianity like he wants to do with the nation of Israel. And it's a, they got a watered-down salvation from a watered-down Bible. And they're pure in their own eyes, they're self-righteous. They would tell you, they would tell you forever, I've been saved, I'm saved. But the problem is there's no evidence in their life. When you get saved, old things are passed away, all things become new. You do not get saved, and then live your life like the day before in the world, unless you're this generation. There's no real change. I talk about the chain of evidence for proving the Bible verses or whatever we believe about the Bible has to be a chain of evidence. But I won't tell you something. There has to be a chain of evidence that proves your salvation. You're not saved just because you say you are. Things have to change. And we see too many times today where people say, "Ah, I just got saved, and then you live your life like nothing ever happened. You don't change a thing. Or you find a church that is as worldly as where you came from. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. You're not washed. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Revelation 1.5 says, and from, uh, and from Jesus Christ, who was the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now we sing it, page 208. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? We sing it in page 222. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But when you get washed, brother, things change. Salvation is based on a washing. This generation is not washed white. This generation is whitewashed. It's phony. It's fake. It isn't real. And what this generation has done is lost the impact of the Word of God in our generations. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, For as much as you know that we were not redeemed by corruptible things as silver and gold from the vain conversations received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. In 1 Peter 1, 23 says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible by the word of God, but liveth and abideth forever. And today his salvation is no longer based on the truth of God. It's based on your feeling. It's based on your emotional state. You go to a church and you hear somebody stew this and you get moved emotionally. Or you go and you see all the lights and the bells and the whistles and somebody says, if you want to trust Christ, just bow your head and pray this prayer. Or they'll say, raise your hand if you want to be saved. And you do. And they say, just bow your head and just close your eyes and, and say this prayer. No doctrine of repentance. No doctrine of sanctification. No doctrine of holiness. It's all about your feeling. All about your emotions. And I'm telling you, that's this generation. I'll tell you the third thing. Verse, 15, verse 13, there's a generation, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. Now, this generation will look to God and never see anything. They'll look to God, but they'll call evil good and good evil, Isaiah 520. They look to God, but they'll call homosexuality and lesbianism just an alternative lifestyle. They'll look to God in this generation, but truth has fallen in the street. Isaiah 59, 14. In this generation, there is no truth, there is no mercy, there is knowledge of God. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. This generation looks to God, but follows the spirit of falsehood. Micaiah chapter 2, verse 11. This generation looks to God, but calls immorality, just situation ethics. Book of Ecclesiastes. This generation has no idea of its roots or its heritage, Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. This generation has a head knowledge but no heart knowledge, Isaiah 29, verse 13. This generation will seek the answers from a polluted Bible and will bring to God a polluted sacrifice, Malachi chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. This generation will forsake everything that God truly is and will be just like the book of Judges where there's no king in Israel and every man does what's right in his own eyes. This generation will look to God's absolute truth and they'll say it's just relative truth. And then it says it needs to be corrected and I'm just a guy that can tell you what God should have said. And as Proverbs chapter 28 verse 5 tells us, this generation has no understanding of anything with God for it says that evil men understand not judgment. They don't understand why AIDS is a worldwide problem. They don't understand why, you know, the virus that everybody's worried about, how, they don't see how it fits in. They don't see the hand of God in 9-11. They don't see the hand of God in terrorist attacks. They don't see any of this stuff. And they have no idea the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Now, I'm not just talking about the world system when I give you all of this. This is New Testament Christianity today. This is us, our generation, right before the Lord comes back. Now listen to me. As parents, you and your children, this evil generation is what your kids are up against. You better mark that down. Back in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, when those Hebrew children were taken from their homeland into the captivity of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, a type of the Antichrist, right in the time that we're looking at right now, that king, that wicked, godless king, had a daily portion for those little Hebrew children to eat that they might learn the ways and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And I want to tell you something. When they go to grade school, when they go to junior, junior high, when they go to high school, when they go to college, wherever they go, They're getting a daily portion, and you need to be up against it. We get the Christians who want to isolate their kids, so they send them a Christian school, or they send them here, and they send them that. I'm not fighting it, but I want to tell you one: isolating them is not the question, because sooner or later they're going to step into the mix of it. The question is not isolation, it's insulation. Getting them built into the authority structure of the family getting them up against this generation and the authority structure of the Word of God in the church and then this world understanding it and seeing it. Verse 13. Lofty eyes and the eyelids lifted up. I I don't have time to get into this today, but I want to tell you one of the greatest studies you'll ever take on, on God will be a study out of Psalms 11, verse 4, on His eyes and His eyelids. Two of the greatest concepts of studying the Word of God. His eyelids try the children of men, the Bible says. You go back and study God's eyes and His eyelids, you find one of the greatest truths you'll ever find. And here's a man who has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. A man who, in our generation, 1948 to 2020, who has lost the understanding of value of his parents. He now disrespects them. He curses them. She curses them. Disrespects them. Sneaks out in the middle of the night. Does horrendous things to embarrass their parents. All kinds of stuff that just is totally against everything, and yet they claim to be saved. You know, it's like the old Flip Wilson line, the devil made me do it. I'm going to tell you something. When you're truly saved, things change. I'm not saying you don't struggle with stuff, but I'll tell you what, you have something in your, in your heart and in your soul to fight against it. And when you don't and you give in so easily, there's something wrong someplace. Don't be careful. Be careful. You're not just pure in your own eyes. And that's what this generation does. They have lost the understanding of the value of parents, why God even gave them to you in the beginning, how valuable and important they are. And you know what? It's a thing where we don't want that today. And then the second thing, pure in their own eyes, self-righteousness. The third thing, and looks up to God in his self-righteous state, but you're blind as a bat and can't see a thing. And the real reason is, is because you've been whitewashed, but you've never been washed white. You've never really come to the place in your life where you've trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. Now, doctrinally, hey, it's all dealing with Israel today, isn't it? Inspirationally, it shows us the generation that we're in and what we're up against. I have no illusions about anything coming up in this world, in this country, that's going to change anything. It's all just moving checker pieces around a chessboard or checkerboard that never means anything. Nothing is going to change because what changed, everybody missed. What changed was in 1948... God started ticking off the last hours, the last days, the last years, the last minutes of the last generation. And that generation is going to end with the tribulation period, rapture of the church, and the second coming of Christ. A church that has shut the door on God today. Revelation 3.20, he says, I behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. There it is, every church today that rejects the Bible Jesus Christ, they're having church service, singing, breakdancing, doing all the funny stuff, light show, smoke going off and everything, and the pastor's getting up in his cardigan sweater, sitting on a stool, talking to you about the love of God. And Jesus Christ is on the outside, knocking, trying to get in. Next couple of weeks, we're going to lay out one of the most confusing chapters in all of the Bible as we get into verses 15 through 33. Today we just saw the (coughs) introduction by looking at that generation and and three things. There's a fourth one coming up we'll talk about next week as we slide into this. And you're going to find five sets coming up over the next couple of weeks, five sets of four things that are found in this generation that you can mark them right where we're at and right where this thing is going But it's built into a code system, you see. I mean, you go buy a commentary or buy somebody's book other than a few guys. (coughs) They'll just skip right past this stuff, blow it, make some allegorical reference to it and be gone. It's in in code. And the code depends on you having a King James 1611 authorized version and believing every word of it and using the word to decode it. And we'll do it next week. Building a code system that can only be opened by believing the Bible. And I'm telling you, when he starts to come down through this thing, boy, those last couple of chapters, he's focusing on, focusing on the generation that we're part of. And you and your family, your kids is up against that generation. You better leave today with a sober thought in your brain, brother, that that it's after your children. And you better do whatever you can do to protect them, whatever you got to do, because they're coming after them. And you've been told now, and you've been forewarned. And it's a thing where it's not going to change. It's not going to get any better. Another four years of Trump isn't going to fix the thing. And if Joe Biden gets in, it ain't going to fix anything. If nobody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It will only matter when the king of kings comes down and takes the throne. Then it'll change. Up to that point, get it. It's a continuation of this generation. It has to happen for him to come back. And everything you're seeing right now is a setup for the nation of Israel to get all the promises that God had. God got him in the land in '48, and boy, it all changed right there, right under our noses. and we never saw it. And it's moving that way to the place now that all around you, in our own city, in our own country, and everything we're seeing, the fulfillment of what I gave you today, and what God gave us through Solomon so many years ago. So you take that and you do with it what you've got to do with it. I'm always here to help you. I'm always here to put a plan together. I'm always here to try to make it work for you. But it starts with you not truly looking inside yourself and making sure you're not whitewashed, but you're truly washed white in the blood of Christ. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for today. Thank you for the good folks here. Pray your blessings upon everything that we do. and We try to give you the honor and the glory and the blessings of it, Lord. We love you so much. Ask now, Father, that you just give us a good uh, rest of this day, and, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. All right, the leaders, go out there and meet with Bob Gregg. He's got some stuff for you. You know what prayer group you're on. If you're going to combine your groups, like I said, go tell Bob so he knows what you're going to do. Work that out. And God bless you. You're dismissed.